Hi everyone and welcome back to Beautiful Minds. Today we're joined by the amazing Carla Tafra, a globally renowned yoga instructor, nutritionist and businesswoman who's currently collaborating with the likes of Sakara Life and Bodybuilding.com. Carla, welcome to Beautiful Minds. Hope you're well. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. So, um, how is isolation treating you? Good. <laughs> yeah. It's good, it's good. A lot of... Uh, home decluttering organizing although i live in a small apartment i do wish that i had a bigger house at this point because there's only so many things i can organize <laughs> yeah. but um but yeah i'm working from home so i have a lot of clients and i write a lot so i have a lot of um writing clients as well so it's not it's not it's not that hard it's just the the aspect of uh not socializing that hits me the hardest honestly yeah we're humans, we're social creatures. Yeah. yeah. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, you're based in Seattle, but you're originally from the most beautiful country in the world, which is Croatia. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm originally from Croatia, but uh, I lived in Spain prior to coming here. And then, yeah, since, since 2016, I've been living here in Seattle. And although Croatia is beautiful, it's not a very perfect place to live let's call it like that um so both me and my husband we moved to spain to pursue better um better jobs and just a better life altogether and we really loved living there but then he got an offer to move here so we did and although i really miss spain and hopefully one day we will go back to live there um just business wise this was a much better decision and we have more opportunity opportunities here so it's just it's better but it's right now in this crazy situation god knows where it's going to be better after all this so i don't know keep your options open people understandable (laughs) yeah and would you generally advise people with similar ambitions to you in croatia or the balkans in general to step out of the country and pursue those ambitions abroad or do you think it's still possible to pursue them in croatia or the balkans generally So I think it depends on where your starting point is, because if you're somebody who already has a studio or a gym or a practice or whatever you already have established and you have a steady clientele, then I don't, I don't think that moving would do any, how would I say that? It would, be, it would be challenging because you would have to start from scratch somewhere. I see. Uh, I, w- I, I mean, it would definitely be more successful just because of the nature of our people, um, but it would be harder. But if you're somebody like me that works in different places but never had her own studio or her own gym or something like that, then it's easier to go out because you will have more opportunities. Um, you will definitely have more visibility because you will be able to move in different circles. Because in Croatia, what, hap- what usually happens is you're in a certain circle and you never get out of it. And once you're there, you only acquire a certain amount of people who can circulate, you know? Yeah. So it's very hard to attract new customers. But for example, if you have a packed studio with, let's say, 30 people coming to every class, then you don't really need more people. Yeah. So I, I know some people who really love it there and who have a really good established business and they wouldn't even think of moving. Uh, 
only why they would move is just to like change the scenery because Croatia as a country is very corrupt and it's just it drowns people especially small business owners so that's the only the only thing that they would like to change like change the location but not change the people <laughs> yeah very interesting and and why do you think that is you know the number of people who <clears throat> um you know would come to you is limited is it because of the culture or is it because of corruption as you mentioned already or what, why do why do you think what's what's the biggest reason uh i don't know what the biggest reason is but there are a couple of them corruption definitely um second people don't really have money so the ones that do don't don't spend the money on stuff like that they would rather you know spend the money on something else um and then also when you own when you are let's say you're a fitness instructor or you're a yoga teacher or something like that it's generally considered a hobby it's not considered a real job so unless you own a studio or you own a gym people are like oh yeah so you're a yoga teacher so what you know so you basically have to work a couple jobs to be able to sustain yourself because the money that you get usually by like teaching classes here and there is ridiculous. Yeah. So I think that's also one of the things, but when it comes to people coming to classes or not, it's, it's mostly, hmm, it's mostly like schedule and organizing and people are not very consistent. Like here in America, um, although there are a lot of people who genuinely need help, with their fitness and their nutrition and everything, yeah. they're more accustomed to say challenges and like pelotons in your home and stuff like that. Whereas in Croatia, nobody's even thinking about it. Like right now, I know probably like 10 people who bought a peloton in the last two weeks because of the social isolation. Yeah. In Croatia, nobody's even thinking about it. They're like, yeah. first of all, it's way too expensive. But second of all, they're like, why would I ever have a bike in my home? Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a mentality difference as well, isn't it? Uh, because I'm originally from Belarus. And for me, I know in Belarus, people would be quite similar. Mm -hmm. And the way I see it is it's like going back in time 20 years. Like, it's just the, the mindset and how friends, mm -hmm. you know, as you mentioned, these jobs like being, say, a yoga instructor or uh, being, say, being an influencer on Instagram, that's not, it's not seen as a real job. It's more, it's more seen as a hobby. And then the real job is, you know, when you go to work and you, I don't know, do something, you know, where you're employed by someone. Yeah, I have a, I have a master's in law. So I understand what you're saying. Because yeah. if I were to live in Croatia, I would have to work as a lawyer. There's yeah, no way yeah. that I would survive being a yoga teacher and a nutritionist in Croatia. That's super yeah. interesting. I think that's a really good example yeah. of someone who came from that society as opposed to me and Staz, who, well, Staz moved to her at a young age. I was born in London, but I don't think in Croatia, like, you know, this trend of um, doing what you do, for example, in terms of writing and doing something which you love um, and seeing that as a proper career versus what you've been educated in and what you've spent so long studying right i think that's a, yeah. a pretty strong difference between the two it is and that's probably one of the biggest the biggest things that i love about america is the fact that you can you can 
do whatever you want to do and you can be whoever you want to be if you work hard enough, basically. So I, I've never practiced here, uh, law. I mean, yeah. I strictly went into the health and fitness world because that's what I'm the most passionate about and that's what I believe in. And my expertise and my experience is huge in that realm. So naturally, as you grow and as you meet new people and as you network and go around, people begin to uh, acknowledge you and respect you for what you're doing. Nobody ever asked me what I studied in college, Yeah. ever. And, then, and, I, and unless I say it, they don't even know. Yeah. So once I was doing, um, I was doing an event and a girl asked me, she said, oh, I read in your bio that you actually went to law school. What, I mean, what mishap made that happen? And I'm like, oh, no, I just didn't. I mean, I didn't just go. I finished. I have a master's. And she's like, what? When? When did you have the time? And I'm like, well, in Croatia, the school systems are different, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, while I was doing all of that, I was a dancer. I became a yoga teacher. I was doing so many things at the same time. But I always knew that, that there's where my passion lies. And the other thing that I was pursuing was of interest to me. But it was more like ensuring that I have food on my table and a roof over my head because being a yoga teacher or a dancer or a nutritionist or whatever, there was no way I was going to pay for my bills. So I, I needed to have a, you know, a backup plan and not just a backup plan, but I needed to have a plan. Whereas here, if, if you work really hard enough and if you push yourself and you just expose your talents and your passions to the world, there will always be somebody who will receive it. Yeah. So my we came here because of my husband, but basically we are staying because of me. And I think that that's incredible. And I yeah. think that anybody who has the opportunity and who has a passion of something different than what they studied um, in, this is the place to make it happen. Absolutely. And just talking on that talent that you developed, I know there's a lot of hard work that went into it and it wasn't a you know, a very straightforward start, you know, you had injuries, you started in ballet. Can we talk a bit more about that? Um, yeah, well, I didn't have a crazy injuries that uh, didn't allow me to do anything. Oh, I but see. That's, that's how I actually found yoga. And mm-hmm. that's how my life went into that direction basically because ballet is really hard uh, on your spine and on your back muscles and when you're doing ballet from young age uh, you are growing at the same time so sometimes uh, you have a teacher that does choreography on one leg more than on the other and you're like throwing that leg up in the air and you're jumping and you're doing so many different things. And then one side of your body develops in one way and the other one doesn't. Um, and basically all of our uh, rehearsals and our trainings were from really, really, really early in the morning when your body is really cold yet. So that's why you can see like ballet dancers having a million layers of clothing on them. And then they just take it one by one as <laughs> they're starting to warm up. 
And as you're growing, your body is growing as well. And it sometimes cannot catch up with what you're doing. So you are getting too flexible or you are over twisting your joints or you're doing something that your body shouldn't be doing. And because you're still a child, you can't do it. So it's not a matter of developing flexibility. You already have it. Every child has mobility and flexibility that we lose over time. Well, if you're dancing from young age, you kind of don't lose it. So your body kind of grows into that state, <laughs> which is why uh, some people who have done uh, ballet since they were younger and then probably didn't do anything for like 10 years can still sit in a split because yeah. their bodies developed like that from when they were 10, let's say. Yeah. So basically, because of the way that I was built, my, my back muscles just didn't really... It didn't really, nothing went to plan. Like I developed scoliosis and my hips just were very misaligned. Uh, so when I went to the doctor, he basically told me to try yoga. And at the time I was 13 and in Croatia, like I've never even heard of it. I thought it was just meditation at that point. They didn't even know that you can move or that you should move or anything like that. So when I asked him like, okay, I've heard a lot of crazy stuff in my life, but how do you think meditation is going to help fix my back? I mean, I can breathe, but what? <laughs> and then he said, no, you're actually, you know, you move. And um, he told me to go to a studio. There was only one studio in whole Croatia at the time. And it was in the capital where I lived. Um, and the funny thing is the owner was actually a dad from a girl that went to my school. And he was Dutch. They moved from the Netherlands and he said, what, you don't have yoga here? I'm going to open a studio. <laughs> so he brought teachers from outside and basically, yeah, from the first moment I entered and I took the first class, I realized how beneficial it is to me and how, how I woke up the following morning without any pain and I couldn't believe it. So naturally, I just started going and going and going. And when I was old enough to become a teacher, I did. And yeah, I really, it changed my life completely. You mentioned the training that you received was more rigorous than let's say a lot of other instructors get nowadays when they go for these uh, mini breaks in Costa Rica or Mexico for like a six week training program to get their certificate. You mentioned you got oh, yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. Our training was a year and a half long. Wow. It's um, a big difference. Because yeah, but mostly because we had the we had the luxury of doing it because nobody else was doing it in Croatia, and uh, the studio was uh, registered with Yoga Alliance, so we were practically following their guidelines. But at the same time, nobody told you how long it should take. You know, they, nobody would have would have said, "Oh, you know what? This needs to take two months or four months." You could you could take as long as you wanted. So we had a lot of different teachers come from different countries and uh, we had even professors from med school come in and teach us about anatomy and then special people that um, are big experts in Ayurveda and Pranayama and it was just incredible, incredible. It was, I, I would, wouldn't change it for anything, honestly. Yeah. And so what was the minimum required? that you had to do to become an instructor or it was just whenever you felt that you were ready how, how did that work well because I started yoga when I was 13 uh, yeah. I never considered it to be normal for me to become a teacher in a year or something like that 
because as a, such a young child, I, I mean, I didn't even consider it being possible to teach somebody something like that. Yeah. So although there is no requirement, I think, I didn't become a teacher until I was 18 just because I didn't feel like I could do it being that young, yeah. you know, like it didn't even cross my mind. I always thought that teachers needed to be more experienced and older <laughs> in a way because yeah. who's going to listen to a 13 year old. Um, so yeah, I waited until I was 18 because I saw in my dancers, in my colleagues, uh, when we were having rehearsals in the morning, I would come before everybody and I would just do uh, a yoga flow that would warm up my spine and my muscles. And then pretty soon people were coming early to join me and repeating what I was doing. And okay. basically then that's when I realized that I could teach a class because I started instructing them on how to breathe and what to do and how to get the maximum benefit from yeah. each and every move. And that's when I realized that, okay, maybe it's time to teach this. <laughs> see okay so basically it's whenever you felt that you were ready you stepped into that teacher role when you started teaching others when you were 18 well i mean yeah you definitely need to talk to your teacher and see if you are even uh, if they think that you're yeah. ready enough because especially as dancers yeah. as you're flexible there are a lot of things that you can do in yoga class and you take it for granted because some people develop flexibility over a long period of time and there you are you know being in a certain pretzel position and you're like okay so now what yeah. so when you actually realize that it's not about the flexibility it's not about the mobility it's more about the breath and the mental concept of what each pose does for your body that's when you can actually become a teacher and that's why I have such a huge problem with these four or six week intensives. You go to a beautiful island and you're there and you're like getting everything in in six weeks and you come back and you teach people. And then I go to a class and then I see how they don't even know how to help you. They don't even know how to instruct you. They don't even understand how to get into a certain pose. They can just do it. And then yeah. they just show off and, and go into these handstands and crazy trans. I don't even know how to describe it, like just crazy transitions that basically aren't uh, necessary for any teacher to know. Like no, no teacher in the world needs to even be able to get up in a headstand, you know, especially because all of us have different bodies. Uh, some of us have some injuries that don't allow you to do certain things and that's okay, but it doesn't mean that you're not a good teacher. If you understand what that pose needs, if you understand which muscles need to be strengthened, which muscles you need to use to pull to get into a certain pose, then, you know, it's fine. You don't even have to do it. So I know a lot of teachers who don't practice inversions because they're scared. They have this fear of falling. Uh, maybe they even had a trauma. I have a friend who ruptured, uh, not ruptured, but broke her ribs because she fell from a headstand. So yeah. of course, naturally, she she's not gonna go and do it all the time, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't know how to get into it and what's the point of it. Uh, yeah. She just doesn't need to do it, and that's okay. And there are a bunch of teachers who do crazy inversions because they they're like ex gymnasts or something, and they don't even know how to explain how to get into it, and then they don't even come and um, help out 
when they see somebody in a wrong position, they don't even correct them. And I don't know, for me, I, I've, I've, I've taken so many bad yoga classes <laughs> in my life that it's hard. It's hard for me as a student. It's hard for me as a teacher because yeah. I love going to other people's classes for a couple of reasons. One of them is just simply variety. And one of them is because I always can learn something from somebody else. And when I go to a class where I don't learn anything, but I'm, I get to being frustrated after class, then I'm mad that I even went and took the class. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, so that's the difference really between being a good student and being a teacher. You need to know how to get into the pose not, and be able to explain it as well. And also you need to be able to correct someone so that once you know, if they're not doing something right, you can uh, adjust exactly the right, um, the right movement so that they get into it correctly. Yeah, exactly. But not also correct them to get into it correctly, but also show them a modification, you know, because and also the advanced position, because not not show, but instruct them to go into it. Because sometimes people are, they don't go past their limits, or they don't even know where their limits are. And you see somebody doing your class, let's say, two times a week for four months, and you see that that person doesn't even like break a sweat. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But that person will, will not go further unless you help them. Because first of all, they don't even think that they can do it. And then second of all, they maybe don't even know, you know, maybe they see a certain pose on Instagram or somewhere and they don't yeah. even know how to get into it. So it's your job as a teacher to always offer an advanced position. Same goes for modification because more people um, look at other people in class than they look at themselves. So what happens is you come to class and next to you, there's somebody doing a crazy pretzel uh, bind or they're touching their foot with their head or something. And you're looking at them and you're like, oh God, what am I doing here? I don't even know what I'm doing. And you try to do it. And then you end up injuring yourself or you're using totally wrong muscles. And that person needs to come to you and offer a modification and tell you that you don't have to get into that forward fold or you don't have to do this or you don't have to do that because the way that you're doing it, you will never go there. So yeah. that's like one of the things that I always instruct my students when I teach them, especially when it comes to forward folds. Forward folds are very interesting because even the most flexible people can have days when their back is so jacked up that they literally can't touch their toes which doesn't mean that they can't do it. It just means that that day, their body needs help in different ways, not by mm. like trying to get your forehead to touch your knees. So a good teacher sees that and a good teacher feels the energy of the room, you know? And that's also one of the things that I don't like about these six-week retreats and yoga teacher trainings because what they do is they offer you a certain way of teaching and people use that as a template for everything and i see that here more than anywhere because america is huge and every yoga teacher is a yoga teacher you know and then you ask them how long have you been doing this and they're like oh a year and i'm like oh, okay and you're a teacher after one year that's good um, but basically you can see that their templates are the same like they do the same warm-up, the same standing positions in the same order with practically even the same words. And you already know 
which school they went to, like which yoga studio they went to, because they're, they don't even know how to get out of that template. And sometimes that's not for everyone. So yeah. you need to feel the energy of the room. Sometimes you have more beginners and you can't go into crazy transitions because then people are like looking around. They don't know where to look. What does a certain pose mean? And especially because in Europe, especially in countries that have yoga, um, the, the yoga derives from very traditionally, they, they don't really have a lot of words in their language for yoga poses. Uh, it's Sanskrit or yeah. you have the English words. But I've, even I heard some crazy new ways of naming of the poses. And I don't even know that, what they are. The girl the other day was, what did she say? Can't remember. But she mentioned uh, an animal. And I'm like, what? I've never even heard that you people call it like this. And people who are not members of that yoga studio have no idea that you can't know because they invented it. <laughs> so yeah, of course, you're like, you're looking around, you're looking what the other person is doing and you're trying to copy it. And of course, I mean, you can injure yourself pretty easily like that. And I just don't like that. Okay. So I was going to ask you, Carla, would you ever, or have you ever been to India to try the more traditional yoga route, which I think relates more to this being in the state of peace as opposed to being able to do, um, you know, super flexible moves? No, um, I've never been to India, but um, I've never been to India for a couple of reasons. One of them, I, never, I mean, when I was, when I started yoga and all that, I didn't really have the money to go somewhere that far, especially from Croatia. Um, and, but for me getting the, the, the mindful and the mental aspect of yoga doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to India. Um, you need to understand what yoga means to you and every person needs to. So the way that yoga traditionally was taught and the way that yoga translates into everything that you do in your life has nothing to do with India. It has everything to do with you because especially if you're not from India, it cannot culturally be a part of you. So you need to make it a part of you. And that's why I always say to people, like, even if I don't practice yoga, let's say for 10 days, I still do yoga. You know, for me, yoga is much more than, than even the meditation, even the, uh, the, the, any type of asana, any type of, Thing that I'm doing for me yoga is breathing it's just breathing and I do that all the time right I breathe all the time so trying to mindfully have moments in my day where I stop and I focus on my breath that's yoga for me and I don't necessarily think you have to go to India for that <laughs> especially today yeah. when uh, yoga has become so so popular that even my sore uh, the birthplace, let's say, of yoga has become very um, touristy. And I've heard from some people that when they're lately that it's not what it was, let's say, 10 years ago. Because my teacher in Croatia, she used to go to Mysore every year for two months. And even now, I, I, I know that she's not going anymore. She says, I don't get anything from it that I used to before. 
So I think that because yoga became so popular, there are good and bad sides. Good side is that you can try to find it anywhere. You don't have to travel there. And bad side is that it's popular. So everybody's trying to make their own version of it. And everybody's trying to make something out of it, even if it's fake. So it's your job to really try to filter it out. And I think that the only way you can do it is if you really, really fall in love with it. Because if you don't, then you will never ever feel the discrepancy of energy and the teacher. You will never feel that your body got what it needed that day. You will never understand what it means to wake up in the morning, roll out your mat and do your own practice. You don't have to go to India. You don't have to go to a studio. You don't have to go anywhere. You just need a mat, you know? And for people who don't understand that, who need to go somewhere or who believe that going to India will change everything about yoga, they're going to come back feeling exactly the same. Yeah, it's very powerful. There's something I wanted to ask you, Carla. So you've mentioned, uh, so you've started yoga initially because uh, it was the doctor uh, who advised uh, you to do it for your back. And Mm -hmm. at what point uh, do you think did you was there a point that you think you've had a shift where it became much less about the physical side of practice and much more you know about the mental uh, side of yoga practice and about the breathing rather than you know it being an exercise for your back yes uh honestly for me it happened from day one because oh, really? the teacher yeah and i i have i was lucky i had the most amazing teacher in the world to this day i called her my mentor Uh, She is one of the most wonderful yoga teachers that I've ever encountered in my life. And the way that she led classes and the way she teaches still today is special to me and to a lot of people who went there and took her classes. There's just something about her that from day one made made it very obvious that yoga is not a physical thing. Mm. And from day one, when we started um, our practice with an ohm uh, kind of communal energy lockdown, let's say, and closing our eyes and starting to breathe, I realized the power of it, honestly. Because we as people, we run around so much that we're not even aware of it. Even on days when we're supposed to do nothing and rest and our schedule is clear, we're always looking for something to do. And you can really see that now, especially during this quarantine thing, when people are locked in their houses, they literally have nothing to do. And everybody is trying to reorganize something, move something, go somewhere. Uh, They're buying new stuff to change stuff in their home because people don't know how to stay still. And yoga is that amazing tool that you can use to find stillness, even in, in the most hectic of times, but also in times when nothing is hectic and you're trying to make it hectic because you don't know any better. So that's what she kind of made me realize from day one. And I'm not saying that everybody's going to have that same experience. And I'm not saying that everybody will even get to that point. But I did from day one. Very interesting. 
And would you say it brought you something that ballet couldn't mentally? Like, was ballet giving you anything psychologically? Discipline. But only that, honestly. Because when it comes to dancing and ballet, I, and later on, I didn't just do ballet. I, I did a lot of different things. I did um, hip hop and jazz and tap and contemporary. Wow. And yeah, because I, I, I was uh, part of a musical cast as well. So I did a lot of different things, but I started with ballet. And that's why I got into yoga. But after that, I didn't do ballet that much. I did everything else. Uh, but my problems with my back still were the same because, you know, I was built the way I was built and what happened with my hips and how they moved and the way my spine just shifted. It was, you know, it was not something that was just uh, temporary. So I was feeling the same pains even when I was doing other stuff. But basically for me, dance was a lot of different things in my life. I loved it, especially choreography. I loved doing it. I loved getting my own kind of um, style into it. But second of all, it was like a great frustration um, tool that let me like, just, it helped me get relief, you know, from everything from like schoolwork to college to boyfriend drama to uh, my mom yelling at me drama you know it's like it was my escape in a way so I loved dancing because of it but I also had days when I hated it I hated the same rehearsal that the same choreography a million times um, and it's just it's a love and hate relationship because you're over you're overly worked out you're super tired your body is like saying no and you know that you're you need like three more hours of rehearsal because you have a competition. So I mostly got like the discipline aspect of it. And the you, even if you fail, like get up again, again, and again, because as a dancer, you fall so many times, you trip, you, uh, you do like 90% of the choreography good. And then 10% you mess up and you're like, Oh my God, I was so close. So I kind of got that from it, but I never learned how to breathe. I never, ever learned how to breathe and be okay uh, with not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, the breathing is very important. And you also talked about how you worked with different athletes and how you applied um, different forms of training to take them away from what they're used to typically. So basically, uh, the dancers were copying me in the beginning, and that's who I started teaching first. That was my first job in my dance studio. I was teaching mobility and flexibility um, yoga drills for dancers, especially because I knew what we were going through. I knew what type of choreography we were doing, so I knew what type of exercises would help out. So I realized that as choreographies changed, so did my practice. Because let's say there was a choreography that involved a lot of Afro moves. It's really hard on your low back. Like Afro is super hard. So what you need to do is you need to be able to warm up your back, especially your lower back, before that rehearsal. And then we had, let's say we had a tap routine. A tap routine is really heavy on your uh, calves and on your legs, like all legs. So you need to work more on strengthening and um, just warming up your legs. So I realized that different 
times need different yoga flows. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, then I started working in a gym and my, uh, I had a lot of private clients and one of them was a tennis player, a very famous one. And then I had some rowers and I had um, uh, football players as well. Um, and then when I moved here, I had the American football player team that I taught and I also work with a couple of rowers and tennis players. So I realized that all of their muscles are different and they need different types of mobility and flexibility drills to really help them excel in their sport. And although yoga in general is great for everyone, there are certain things that you can do that can definitely help you become better, faster, stronger, even if it's for a split of a second. So that's what I realized that I wanted to do. And that's why I partnered with BB, uh, bodybuilding.com because they have such a vast array of athletes and every athlete, especially like a bodybuilder, a power lifter, a crossfitter, they all use different muscles and need different types of explosivity or agility um, or just range of motion. So different drills can definitely open up different areas better, faster, um, or just quicker. Sometimes you're working on the same thing and your hips open up better than your shoulders, but in your line of work, in your sport, you need your shoulders to be like the main dynamic, let's say, like, like American footballers. They need to throw, you know? Um, so if you are throwing that ball, you need to really work on stabilizing your shoulder uh, and your traps and the whole upper body. So while your legs need to be explosive. So yeah. you need to find drills that will work more on the upper body while also keeping the lower body mobile, but not too flexible so that their explosivity is still there. Because if their muscles are way too flexible, then they will lose the explosivity. Talk us through some drills that you do with an American footballer or a bodybuilder. So, oh, that's different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> American footballer. Uh, okay, talk like about I the said, throwing and the legs, but then with the bodybuilder, I mean, are we seeing an evolution now in the average bodybuilder? Well, I don't really know, honestly, because I've never been in that world. I've, um, I've never, I've, I've, I have, I'm, I'm doing weightlifting, but I've never been in the bodybuilding world, especially because in Europe, the bodybuilding competitions aren't as uh, mainstream as they are here. So when I moved here, I realized that people are going to the gym and working out in a whole different way, especially if they're preparing for a show and they're prepping for this and they're prepping for that and their whole nutrition is completely different. Um, and sometimes if that's the only goal, if the goal is to get and step on stage, then having more flexible muscles won't help. I see. So you definitely need to keep that pump. And if you are keeping the pump, then the flexibility kind of kills it in a way. Yeah. So I would say that uh, for a bodybuilder, if you are working towards a certain goal and you want to appear a certain way, you need to be able to understand that flexibility and muscle pumping and like getting lean 
a certain amount so that your muscles can show in a certain way doesn't go hand in hand. But if you are bodybuilding uh, without a goal in your mind, with more of a physique, long-term physique uh, outlook, then of course yoga can help because yoga can build more, um, it can elegate your muscles in a way. So yoga will never shorten them. And if you are trying to get to that place, then yoga will make your muscles, let's say, prettier in a way, but uh-huh. they will not be as bulky. I see. They will not be as perceived as big, if you understand what I mean. So that's when it comes to like bodybuilding, especially, I mean, with any person, you do need to understand why that person is doing what they're doing. Because if you're just doing it for general like well-being and just to look good, then do everything. But if there's a certain goal in mind, you might not hit that goal if you are actively doing yoga like crazy. Yeah. And that famous tennis player you worked with, it was, uh, remind us his name? Goran Ivanishevich. Yeah. Was he still playing when you worked with him or was he retired by then? He was retired, but I think he did like senior games and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But he had a specific condition, um, which I'm not really allowed to talk about, but he had a condition with his uh, heart muscle. Um, So it was very interesting in terms of like the the breathing and the stretching of the pectoral muscles and how how it all kind of helped in in certain ways. So you also need to to understand that every person, even if they're doing the same sport, they're differently built. And sometimes people who are taller can have more issues than the people who are shorter. Yeah, he's very tall. Yeah, he's very tall. So sometimes that has certain repercussions, you know. So you need to understand that even though every sport needs to be taken um, by itself so does every athlete yeah and some athletes are just more explosive by nature and you should never try to tame that especially if their sport requires them to be explosive yeah. so it's always uh it's very challenging and that's why i loved it i mean that's why i love that that's why i love working with athletes because every every one of them is like a little experiment <laughs> and you can try to see what you can do yeah i mean goran was a very durable tennis player he he played for many years i think decades even even into his senior years as you mentioned in those tournaments and when you, when you talked about taller athletes you know i think in football as well um or well, soccer in the states but you know, a lot of them are very tall, especially the defenders. And I think we spoke the other day about Rio Ferdinand. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he's a giant, he's a, he's a beast, he's like six foot four. And, you know, he was very famous as a centre-back for being nimble, technical, quick. And he talked about Yeah, ballet. but then you also have uh, Roberto Carlos, who was shorter than me. Yeah. And he was so quick. And yeah. he had such a, such a terrific kick and super explosive kick that, you know, it two different people uh but crazy within their own bodies you yeah know? would it surprise you then when you hear about Rio Ferdinand doing ballet and that being his so-called hidden secret even today he's a boxer you know he's a very durable athlete and then you've got Ryan Giggs who played until the age of 40 at the top level where he did yoga I mean what would your comments be on that well I think um everything is 
going into that direction where yoga, ballet, Pilates, bar, whatever, aren't considered girl sports anymore. Yeah. And something that girls do at home for their, I don't know, for their booties. Um, People are starting to recognize the importance and the power of those techniques. And when it comes to ballet, it's completely different to do ballet when you're older than when you are younger. And ballet drills are amazing because what they do is they give you, they strengthen your core like nothing else. And they really work on your hip flexors and, of course, develop your entire body, but in a way that is very controlling. So you're able to control the ball. You're able to control whatever you're doing later on uh, when you are doing the drills. But the difference from when you're younger to when you are older is the fact that when you're younger, you're usually doing choreography as well. So that's why when you're older and you're just doing certain ballet drills, they're not as damaging to your body as doing ballet when you're younger. And I'm not also saying that ballet is damaging to your body in no. like in total. I'm just saying that the way that ballet is being taught and the way that people usually, you know, like when you are doing a big show, you are doing a certain choreography for months at end. And no choreography in the world works all the muscles at the same time. So you're always using, let's say, one leg or one part of your body more. So imagine if you're repeating that for months, what's going to happen? One side of your body is going to develop in a different way and you're going to have the balances and no amount of drills is going to help out because as the show approaches or the competition or wherever you're doing the choreography uh, is you're doing less and less of the drills and more and more of the choreography. And then after the choreography is done, after the show is done, then you start prepping for a new one and you're back to your drills, which lasts for a month until you start repeating a new choreography all the time, all the time, all the time. And sometimes what happens is these big professional dancers, they have, let's say, multiple choreographies at the same time. So their bodies are torn and they're just killing themselves. But if you are doing certain drills from ballet, from Pilates, from yoga, to help you, then that's where the power of that comes from. So it's no wonder to me that Rio Ferdinand or Ryan Giggs did any of that, that helped them become who they are and had less injuries and all of that because you are stabilizing your joints. You are strengthening your muscles and toning them in ways that your other teammates aren't. And also, like I told you, I don't really trust in the stretching aspect of any athlete today i mean it's getting a little better let's say but none of the coaches really knows how to stretch and nobody does that and not even warm up so when you see like the the footage uh of a training or something like that you can see that 90 percent of them are like half-assing what they're doing and they don't even understand how much that can impact their game and how, how less susceptible to injury they would be if they were just to pay a little bit more attention to their warm-ups and cool-downs. Yeah. I mean, you talked earlier about the branding and the perception of yoga, Pilates, ballet being less feminine and a bit more balanced on the, on the gender scale. 
Okay. I mean, when you when UFC fighters come now and they start, um, you know, showing these drills from yoga, from Pilates, being open about it, how important is that as well for the perception, for the improvement and development of that particular category? Oh, it's, it's, it's really the yeah. only thing that can change it. And yeah. that is changing it because it, when it arrived and when people started, not, not people in, that are already yoga uh, practitioners but people who have never seen yoga before to them it all looks like just stretching and I know half of my friends when they told me that I was doing yoga and that I would teach them a class and they said oh no I'm a guy I need like boxing or something like that and then they would take a class and they would die because yeah. they're just not used to using those muscles in that way so I think that the biggest reason why people realize that it's not a girl thing is because it's hard. It's yeah. harder than you think. Yeah. <laughs> and once the guy actually tries it and he dies after it, first he's embarrassed because here he is, this big guy being able to run for miles or box or play football or whatever. And then he can't even hold one pose. That's number one. And then second, he becomes humbled because of it. And he starts yeah. to realize that maybe if he used that, those uh, exercises a little bit more, maybe he could be better at what he already says he's great at. Yeah. So the more athletes that talk about it openly, the more people are going to be open to it. And I still hear some people talk about it as a non-Christian thing to do and ties it into religion and all of that but, ridiculous uh you know ridiculous or not i i don't really uh even think about it that way because yeah. for me it's not, it's not important at all it has nothing to do with religion it has nothing to do with who i believe in and what i believe in it has everything to do with your own mindset and just you know trying to be as mindful and as as present in the present moment as possible, which is what all of us should be doing anyway. Yeah. And if, if praying to God or going to the mosque or whatever your religion may be doesn't help you with that, then you need yoga. <laughs> Believe yeah. it or not, you need it. Doesn't matter if you're not Hindu or, or Buddhist or you are. So. I completely agree, yeah. And then just moving back to um, talking about the perception of these categories, yoga, Pilates, etc. You know, and then what they try and do, and I've noticed this many times, is they make a yoga category specific for that sport or that discipline. So there'll be yoga for boxing, yoga for UFC, yoga for X. Like, is that helping it or is that almost undoing some of the hard work that was initially done to associate it with a more masculine image, let's say? Well, like I said, I, I believe that specifying certain exercises for certain sports is crucial yeah because that's how you can see the most benefit from them i see i'm not saying that people shouldn't be doing any type of flows of course you can you can do any type of yoga you can go to a heated room one day you can do yin yoga the other day it doesn't really matter yeah. but if you are a professional athlete then you're living breathing and doing everything to help you optimize your performance so if you are somebody who is let's say preparing for the olympics 
and you have a certain amount of time to get prepared for something, you're using all of the tools that you have to help you reach that goal. So at that point, having specific skill set of exercises definitely helps because you are trying to use your nutrition, your sleep, your training routine, everything that you're doing is trying to get you closer to that end goal that you're trying to get to. So it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that yoga for uh, UFC fighters is completely different than yoga for runners. Yeah. But there are probably some things in that flow that help the runners recover better, faster, can run again. Let's say today they've ran 15 miles and they need to be able to recover so that they can run that again tomorrow. And there are certain things in yoga that can help you. Because if you're staying in a certain stretch for a longer period of time, then the lactic acid will dissolve quicker. Uh, so it depends. But if you're a UFC fighter and you need to be quick on your feet, then maybe avoid doing those things because it will make you slower because yeah. you will have your muscles will be looser. Absolutely. So that's what I'm saying. Like if you're a professional athlete, yeah, for sure that helps. Definitely. I'm just writing all of this stuff down because what you're saying is very useful, especially for me. I do a lot of sports. I try and stay active and fit. So this is really going to help me become a better mover. And I think that's something crucial that I'm trying to um, embrace in my life, becoming a better mover because, you know, you can do different sports and I'm never going to be a professional athlete in any discipline at this stage, but I can be a better mover, how I walk, how I run. It will help recovery as well. So yeah, it's very interesting. Absolutely. It helps your whole mechanics. It helps your yeah. hormones. It, it helps everything. And especially in, in, in times like now when you're practically, you know, immobile most of yeah. the time, Isolated. Uh, whether it's because of the virus or is it because of the, you know, just life in general, because people are sitting down more, they're driving cars all the time. Nobody's walking anywhere. Like yeah. that was the first thing that I that I noticed when I moved here because I, in Europe, I didn't own a car and I didn't need it because I was walking everywhere. I used public transport and I was just fine. Whereas here, you literally can't walk. <laughs> Unless you live in New York and you live in Manhattan, you can't because the distances between things are so large yeah. that you need a car. So even I find myself in the car way more often than I ever did it before. Yeah. And just that, that sitting. Yeah. And, and, but, but that's the thing. People are in their cars more, even in different places right now. It's just that type of culture. It yeah. may be stemmed from here, but even back home in Croatia, I see people in the car all the time and the yeah. traffic jams are crazy and they yeah. never were when I was younger. It's true. So, yeah. As a, as, a, as a community, as a whole, we are more sedentary, whether we believe it or not. But like on a larger scale, we are. So we definitely need to know how to move better if, if we want to have healthy hips when we're 60. Yeah. Carla, being a qualified nutritionist, what does good nutrition mean to you? Well, to me, good and proper diet for everyone is the one that that person can stick to, that he can get creative with, and that doesn't cause that person any 
discomfort, let's say. So I became a nutritionist because I have celiac disease and I struggled a lot until I even found out what was wrong with me. But basically, my biggest problem was the fact that even the healthy stuff was causing discomfort because my microbiome was already so depleted from all the good bacteria that my body wasn't even able to understand what to do with the broccoli, let alone something worse, you know? Yeah. So for me, good nutrition depends on a lot of different things. It depends on where you're from. It depends on your current habits. It depends on your level of activity. And it also depends on your goals because professional athletes definitely need to eat differently. And there are some people who can say that they're eating whatever and they're fine. But that is, first of all, that's very rare. Second of all, it has repercussions, maybe not now, but like maybe 10 years from now. And third, it, you can't go publicly and say that unless you actually know that that's true, which yeah. nobody can. So because you're able to eat uh, five pizzas in a week and you're fine, doesn't mean you're fine. It means that you're severely depleted from nutrients. It means that you need to supplement vitamins and minerals because your body didn't take it from the food that you just ate. So that's my biggest problem. My biggest problem is the fact that people are trying to divide the foods into good and bad. And for me, it's not about good and bad. It's about being sure that even if you're eating the, let's say, bad food, you're still ensuring that you get all the vitamins and the minerals that you're supposed to. Because otherwise, your body cannot function. Because we're all, primitively, when you look at how we're built, we're all made of cells that need to function. And if you are not managing to optimize that system, there's no way that you're going to do that for food. No way. And then talking about the good bacteria in the gut, how essential is that? And do you think enough people are aware of that? It's the most essential thing. Absolutely. And I don't think that people are as aware as they should be. I do think that they are more aware than they were before. Because now we hear words like microbiome and healthy guts being thrown around all the time, which has something to do with the fact that a lot of research that has been conducted in the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years has finally came to a result. And that's the thing that people don't understand is research takes time. And if you read now about a research that says that coconut oil is not good for you, you need to understand where that research come from and how many people were part of that research, how many over how long of a period was the research conducted for and stuff like that. So that's why we have so many contradicting theories everywhere. But when it comes to your microbiome, it is the most essential part of your being because everything you eat and everything you do, all the stress, all the uh, sleepy, no, uh, the sleepless nights, the frustration because of your job, the emails that you have to write, everything gets there in a way and your your bacteria actually responds to all of it and the way your body responds to stress is the most important thing in your life and if you are able to 
manage that, control that, and optimize that, then yeah, of course you can say that you can eat five pizzas in a week and be fine. But if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to optimize your microbiome and feed your gut bacteria with the food that you're supposed to give it to them, which is the food that those bacteria need to thrive, then you can be eating as clean as anybody else and without any processed foods, without anything, and still have problems. So your microbiome is kind of the brain behind all of that. And you need to educate yourself to understand what you need to do to optimize its function the best. And it changes over time. It changes when you travel. It changes when you move countries. I moved countries twice. So my microbiome changed twice because the longer you live somewhere, the more your bacteria uh, flora starts to change, which is normal because you're using the same uh, food from the same soil, which is different, different countries, different climates, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, my biggest problem was moving here because the, the food here is so depleted because the soil is so depleted that my body was kind of thinking of certain uh, ingredients as toxins. And it was immediately throwing them out. It was rejecting them. So what it meant was that I would eat a garlic here, just garlic, and I would feel so violently sick that it was like I ate seven pints of ice cream. And for me, at that moment, that garlic was more toxic than those seven pints of ice cream. Wow. And do you think this yeah. is a global problem with soil depletion, or is it specific to the USA? It is definitely a global problem. And as we go further uh, and we live uh, longer, it's going to become a more, more concerning issue everywhere. Uh, in America, it's, it's pretty bad, I must say. But and some countries are still being able to, to sustain their own like local and as organic as possible without um, killing their soil, and which has a ton of minerals and vitamins still. But it's, it's getting harder and harder. And, and then you top it off with GMO foods that literally have like 20% of the nutrients that your regular food would have. So what we're actually doing is we're putting a lot of volume in our bodies that has no nutritional value. And also the taste sucks when it's yeah. GMO. So what you're actually sacrificing is a lot. You're sacrificing the taste, you're sacrificing the nutrient ratio, you're sacrificing the flavor, you're sacrificing the way that your body is going to react to it. Because when something is genetically modified, your body will most likely think that it's toxic. And it will not take the nutrients from it. So you will have a reaction, whether it's bloating or cramps or throwing up or something worse. So as much as I would like to say that there is a diet that everybody should be doing and everybody will be fine, I don't believe in that. <laughs> I yeah. think that every person needs to find for themselves what works. And that is the biggest problem of today's uh, diet mentality. That is... People are not willing to experiment. Yeah. And as the health foods out there 
are certain health foods that everybody is eating, people generally think that those are the healthy foods and the other ones aren't. So they stock up on those and they completely disregard anything that they know about their bodies. And then they don't know why they'll still bloat it and why they still have issues, you know? Some people eat insane amount of fiber, especially if they're plant-based. And that doesn't mean that that's good for them. But they're plant-based, so they won't eat meat. They won't even try to eat anything else. So they eat tons and tons of lentil and beans all the time, hoping that their body will finally get used to that. Well, maybe they won't. And some bodies just can't. Are you familiar with Dave Asprey? He's a um, he's a big speaker yes. on the yeah. From here. Oh, is he from Seattle? Okay. Mhm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on some of his comments about um, you know, how we've overcomplicated it with all these niche diets such as veganism, uh, carnival diet? He thinks you know there's definitely an anti-aging formula with food, and he calls it the bulletproof diet. Is that something that more people should pay attention to, or what are your thoughts? Well. My biggest problem with stuff like that is that people start following something and then they just follow blindly. And yeah. it's the same with what I just told you. Of course, Plant-based yeah. uh, is, I became plant-based because of my issues here. Because I, I uh, when you have celiac disease, you have issues with gluten, but mostly you have issues with all grains because your body doesn't really know how to break it down properly. So I was paleo for a long time because it was the best for me and my body felt the best. I was sleeping good. I was exercising. I had a lot of energy. uh, My skin was great. Everything was great. And then I moved here and I continued eating paleo and I went down to 47 kilos or hundred pounds, a little under hundred pounds. Um, because I was severely malnourished and severely depleted from the food that I was eating because my body wasn't intaking any of the protein that I was giving it. And I had severe issues with the meat here, severe issues. And I decided to go plant-based because I realized that I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I couldn't do it. And I was just losing weight all the time. So I went plant-based and I started to gain my weight back and I still eat fish, but I'm also used to more white fish like in Croatia and Spain, whereas here the fish is more heavy because it comes from colder waters and it's blue mostly. And the white one is also very fatty and very heavy. So always need to be very careful when it comes to those um foods that i just don't go crazy on them because i love salmon and i love tuna but i can only have a certain amount and then after that my body is like nope i'm not taking it yeah so whether or not dave asprey's diet works or it doesn't like i said it depends on a lot of different factors one where you're from two what has your general um tradition and eating uh what has it been since you were younger how was how how was you how was your family eating when you were younger uh third how are you eating now for your level of activity 
And then five, uh, educating yourself on what actually that diet means. And definitely try it if you want. But after a few months, if you still don't feel good, then maybe it's not for you. Yeah. So that's what I say about keto. Everybody's going keto. Everybody's eating insane amounts of butter and, and bacon. And I'm like, you know that that can't be good for you. Yeah. It just yeah. can't be good for you. No matter the research, no matter whatever you hear from these keto people, keto diet exists for a reason. It, it started as a treatment for diabetes and autism and people who generally had a lot of inflammation in their bodies. So it works. It definitely works for a limited amount of time. Because for a specific group ketosis, of people. Yes, because being in ketosis all the time isn't good for everyone. Yeah. And even if you believe that it's good for you because you're leaner than you've ever been before and you can eat all the bacon in the world, it doesn't mean it won't clog your arteries 10 years down the line. Yeah. So I just think that people need to be more flexible with what they want to eat and how they want to eat it. Because if you are more flexible in that array, then you can definitely have uh, a cake and a pizza and whatever and not feel guilty after that and totally be fine. But if you are very adamant about what you're doing, then you know, mostly the people who go on the keto diet, they start measuring their ketones and then they do that all the time, like all the time, every day they check their ketones. And then they're like, oh my God, this day it was lower or this day it was higher. And what happened? What did I eat? And then they eat, let's say, they go to a birthday party and they eat a piece of cake. And of course, their ketones drop. And then they're beating themselves up about it, saying, oh my God, I just, I just did something terrible. Now I'm out of ketosis. Now my ketones are not uh, transforming my energy from uh, fats to fuel, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, so? one day <laughs> yeah so yeah. that's kind of the problem with with the diet mentality people get very stuck on one thing and they don't understand that everything changes as they grow older everything yeah i'd say my relationship with food has been very unique too because i always try and make it fit my lifestyle and i know there was a period where intermittent fasting used to be the mm -hmm. big buzzword in my friendship group specifically i don't know one or two of my friends still do it occasionally if it suits me i might go through an intermittent fast like you know for a week max or whatever but it's not something that you know i generally adhere to i feel very lean all year round so energy levels are high i'm performing well in sports but what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting um so i believe that it's great and i did it for a long period of time especially for somebody who has celiac disease, I think it's great because it gives your body uh, the chance to kind of digest everything it needs to. <laughs> it gives you the, the opportunity and it definitely creates a better focus when you're uh, in that fasted state. My problem with intermittent fasting is that once again, it's not for everyone. A lot of women have issues with their hormones and intermittent fasting. And also, it's not for those who are very um, 
how would I say that? They're, they're very constricted by those times that usually people make for themselves. So for example, your eating window starts at 2 p.m. and it ends at eight. So you have a six hour window. And then Monday comes, you eat it too. Tuesday comes, you eat it too. Wednesday comes and you start getting hungry at 11. So from 11 to two, those people can't think about anything else but food. And that is completely wrong. That's not the point of intermittent fasting. The point of intermittent fasting is to actually regenerate your cells and help them uh, not just turn to fat for fuel, but to, to help your body digest all the food and give it time and just increase your longevity by, by helping you create and regenerate your cells. And one of the biggest problems of intermittent fasting is the fact that people are not as educated about it. They don't know what window works for them best. Yeah. Because when you're stressed out, you can throw yourself out of ketosis and you can also throw yourself out of the fasting window. So if you wake up in the morning and you're super stressed, either because you're hungry and you can't eat or because you have to... Uh, you open your email and there's a bunch of different things you have to do, your cortisol can spike up so high that you can literally be out of your fasting state. Yeah. It reverses so, and the, that's one of the benefits. Things, definitely. And that's one of the things that people don't understand. Well, that's why I always say, if you start doing intermittent fasting, you need to start slow. You need to start with the 12-12 window because I believe that everybody can do the 12-12 window. Um, and you have to see for yourself how it works. And of course, there, it, it's an adjustment time. You can't just wake up in the morning and be like, okay, today I'll fast for 24 hours and I'll be fine. No, so no, no. there are different ways that you can fast. There's so much research done on it. And I do believe that it's great. But I also believe that it's not for everyone. People who have hypoglycemia definitely can't do intermittent fasting. Women who are pregnant, women who are nursing. So it's, it's, it's just trying to find what works for you at any given moment. Because sometimes some things might work for you great for two years, but it doesn't mean that they'll work for you forever. Yeah. Same with training. Like if you're a runner, it doesn't mean that you're gonna run until you're 70, you know? Maybe you'll just stop at one point and be like, I don't want this anymore. My knees hurt, my hips hurt, I just don't wanna run. So being, once again, flexible with your life, because nothing in this life is for certain, like, look at this, what we're going through now. Who yeah. could have ever predicted this happening? No one. You know? So the same goes for, like, intermittent fasting. Yeah, you can, you can think you're going to do it for two months, but maybe something will happen and you won't be able to do it anymore. And that's okay. Like, when women get pregnant, like, you can't do intermittent fasting, no matter how much you want to. So adaptation is the premise of all of our lives. And the same goes for, for fitness, for nutrition, for everything. Same goes for like meditation as well. There are certain moments in your life when you're probably going to be more adapt to meditate every day than other, and that's okay, you know. So, being a businesswoman, how does flexibility work for you in your day-to-day -day life, and how you run your business but still look after yourself, making sure that you know you're you're living the best version of yourself? Well, once again, it changes from from day to day and I, I try to, to listen to what my body and my, my mind need every day. 
and sometimes that's great and sometimes it doesn't work that great and that's normal because as a business owner you have ups and downs you know and one month you do one thing and one month you do another thing and then one month is great and one month isn't <laughs> so it, it all depends on how you treat yourself but um knowing that it's okay to fail knowing that it's okay not to be the best at everything and knowing that you will make mistakes that you will have to learn from is kind of what i believe in because every person makes mistakes and every person goes through ups and downs and doubts and and just crazy moments of non-stop work and then crazy moments where you have so much time on your hands and you're like what am i gonna do that is just a very common 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 thing between everyone but in times like these when nothing is 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 explained and basically nobody knows what's going to happen i think this is the time when people are beginning to go deeper within themselves and really trying to understand who they are because at this moment nobody in the whole world knows what's going to happen and it's a very tough time for business owners for for just regular employees and for people who have lost their jobs right now because of this yeah yeah so as a business owner i am grateful that i can be as flexible as i can and that i can adapt my business to what's going on right now and that i'm not out of work yeah so i think it's very important that you can adapt because if you stick to your old ways that's kind of deeming you for failure like for example right now the restaurant business and the travel industry is there is i mean it's taking a big hit so i've seen here restaurants that are fine dining that are four dollar signs restaurants are actually turning into drive-ins and um, drive-throughs, not drive-ins, but offering different options for takeout. And like literally, there's a fine dining restaurant here that has a bagel joint right now. And I think that's so smart because who is gonna go to a fine dining restaurant and order a takeout from a fine dining restaurant? Nobody, it's gonna be $200, like nobody's gonna do that. So you need to adapt to your community. You need to adapt to where you are. And I'm not saying that it's easy, but I'm just saying that as a business owner, I think it's so important because course, it's your business. Course. Yeah. And you're also a, a good writer and, you know, you collaborate with good brands, uh, famous brands. You know, is there, any, is there any piece of advice that you give to people out there generally creating content in a period like this, other than what you just said? just stay authentic yeah and either offer help in a way or tackle the issues of today from a different perspective yeah because everybody's going through the same thing and some people are being hit harder than the others some people maybe on the outside look like they have everything under control but on the inside they're dying yeah. And just by staying authentic and saying like, hey, guys, I'm struggling too, means a lot because people want to 
to feel like they're not the only ones feeling that way. Yeah. But also offering help. Like I don't believe that people need to do a lot of, especially like content creators and like Instagram influencers and stuff like that. I'm not, I don't believe that people need to stop doing uh, like sponsored posts and stuff like that. But with a twist, you need to know why you're doing that. Because as an influencer, I only work with brands that I believe in. And I always, the only reason why I say yes to collaborations is to showcase something to my audience, right? And why I'm using it. So as a nutritionist, I'm always going to shout out a company that has really good products, especially in times like these, when people don't know what to do and they need help. So if you can buy, let's say, a tea that has ginger and turmeric and some adaptogens like rhodiola and ashwagandha, it can really help you lower your stress. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if you are only looking to kind of gain money from this whole situation, then that's where you need to change your mindset and shift that because that's just wrong. (laughs) And actually I was talking to my friend the other day. He's also a content writer here in the UK. He's based in Birmingham. His name's Tom O'Brien. And um, Mm -hmm. actually I'll give him a shout out. His uh, his company's called Tom Wrote It. And he helps companies make a point in writing. So Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah, he's really cool. Um, and yeah, he, he was talking to me about it the other day and I said, look, I'm going to have this uh, lady on Carla. I shared your profile with him and we had a little chat and he says, yeah, man, if you get a chance to ask her like how she found her niche in, in writing specifically because, you know, obviously he, he wants to, um, you know, he aspires to collaborate with big brands as well. Um, obviously, he has certain, his scope is slightly different being in Birmingham, but, you know, not far away from London. So what would your advice be to someone like him? Um, I believe that your niche is the one that you're passionate about. The one that you can never run out of ideas. Uh, the one where you always have something to say. So for me, that's overall wellness, whether it's, uh, helping somebody, uh, understand why a certain, ingredient is good or bad and how they can actually use it to their advantage uh, or explaining why yoga is so great even after you've done your practice or talking about mindfulness and mindful habits that you can implement into your day-to-day lives or I don't know how meditation can help you become a better friend or a better husband or a better wife or whatever. I believe that these topics are essential and crucial all the time, not just today or tomorrow or in a month from now. I think that they're crucial all the time because generations change. People are getting older, some people are getting uh, born, and it's like it's a constant loop of needing to talk about the same topics because as we grow, we learn and we change and we adapt, and different situations in our lives make us see things in a different way because something that i've read 20 years ago is definitely not going to be the same cause the same effect in my head if i read it now so i believe that if you're writing about something you're passionate about you're that's your niche because for example i'm never going to write about finance or tech because i'm not passionate about that 
And although as a writer, I can learn and I can always do a research. Uh, I mean, I can do a research story and do something. I'm not passionate about it. I could care less, honestly. And it's very hard to, to find clients or to work if you cannot explain your passion behind something. Very powerful. And you mentioned that in Croatia, you had a mentor for yoga, someone that you looked up to, someone that inspired you. Do you have one for writing? No, not really. No. Who's your favorite no. author? Oh my God. There's so favorite many. Favorite book or, you know, let's. Mm, wait, let me think. Let me think. Let's go a bit deeper on your reading list then. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think. Let me think. Um, wow. There's so many, honestly. Um, fiction and nonfiction. I read so many different things, but I don't know how your schools, um, what's your reading situation in your schools in UK and how is it actually today? But in Croatia, when you're in school, you're reading all these classical writers and all of their stories. And one of my favorites was always Kafka. Yeah, um, Kafka, yeah, yeah. I... Yeah, I loved his books because they're so much deeper than you would actually think. And that's a problem because we all get to read them when we're so young and we don't understand anything that's there. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like you don't understand it and you can't because you haven't gone through life and you, you, there's no way that you can understand all the metaphors and, and just the, the deep uh, inner uh, battle that he's doing uh in all of his books so i i love him um i love from like the the nonfiction writers and like the self-help let's say books uh of that sort um i really love angela duckworth um she's a harvard scientist and she wrote a really good book on grit and how grit is what actually differs the people who succeed and who don't because talent can only get you so far. You need yeah. to have the grit and the willpower. I yeah. love a book um, by Melinda Gates, actually. Her book is amazing. Uh, the Moment of Lift, I think, is the name. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I read a lot of also like fiction. I love Dan Brown because I think his topics are really interesting. Um, I believe that he kind of shows us uh, the historical aspect of the world in a way that maybe none of us ever imagined because history in schools is usually very boring to people. <laughs> um, I, I love uh, all the different all the different books that can make you either get immersed in the book or can help you discover something about yourself and i think it's important to also understand that not all of the books are for everyone and when it comes to like the the wellness and fitness world let's call it like that i i don't really like the books that are in that in that realm because they're all kind of saying the same thing and I don't know if I will ever write a book, but writing articles and writing blogs and writing like copywriting for people really, really um, fuels my passion because 
I think that today people are very, they have very short spans of attention yeah. and you can only hold them for a certain, certain period of time. So even if it's a quote that you write and then they're like, oh, wait, this sounds good. It makes me think. Um, or it's a big blog post of 2000 words. I, I think that you need to be aware that people are not going to spend their days reading books and books and books, which is very sad to me because I really love books and I hate reading on tablets and computers and whatever. I always have a book in my, in my hand, but that's changing as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think that being in front of a screen and reading a book on the screen all the time is that good for your eye health anyways. So I, I don't know how things are going to change. I believe in a good story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I just believe in, in stories with deeper meaning. And yeah, that can make you kind of forget about the world. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I love reading as well. Carla, I uh, always ask the guests that come on a few series of questions at the end, just very easy, straightforward ones. Um, so I'll start off with what keeps you awake at night? What keeps me awake? Um, just the uncertainty of today, let's say. <laughs> um, but I, I really try to let go of things that I can't control. And I have been struggling with that since I was little because I, already ha I always had uh, issues with falling asleep and staying asleep and generally having good quality sleep. Yeah. And in the last year or so, I really worked on that. And there's a good book actually by Matthew, what's his last name? But when I think called Why We Sleep. Yeah, I've read it, it's really, really good. good. Yeah, really good book. Really good. I, I've really tried to like implement all the tactics and understand that that's, you know, I really need that. I really need sleep and I, I really try to uh, focus on getting everything done before my head hits the bed because I don't think that we can ever get our sleep back, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, I he says that, that in the book, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that we only need to make sure that we're sleeping good from now on yeah. and using whatever we can. So... I, I'm a very, uh, I worry about a lot of different things. I worry about my parents. I worry about everything that happens in the world, uh, about somebody feeling good or bad, or I just, I think about stuff a lot. And my brain is a constant like, Bruh. so hmm. sometimes I just need to literally tell him to shut up because I need to sleep now. And it works more than not in the last year. It definitely didn't work before. It definitely didn't because going to bed was the only time when I had the time to think about stuff before. And I'd be like, okay, now I, I'm laying in my bed and great. Next three hours, I'm just thinking about stuff that I didn't have time to think about. So now I'm literally telling myself, no, this is not the time. You have to sleep. And then tomorrow you will think about those things. <laughs> yeah. So it's a practice. It's definitely a practice. It doesn't work every day. But it's a practice. Yeah. 
No, hopefully it comes with time. Yeah. So if I was to ask someone close to you, for example, your husband, what's Carla's superpower, what would he say? What's my superpower? Um, uh, what would my husband say? Oh, my husband would definitely say that my superpower is when I'm hungry, I'm not hangry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. He is the hangriest person in the world. Yeah, if he same. is hungry, nothing works. And I can hold off. Like if somebody tells me you won't be able to eat for three hours, I'll be like, that's okay. Meanwhile, <laughs> he is like eating grass at the same time. <laughs> so I think that's my superpower. But seriously, I think my superpower is um, just like getting up every time when I'm knocked down, honestly. Because I've, I've, I've had so many no's and, and uh, rejections and failures and a lot of stuff happening in my life and I'm still here. So I think that's my superpower. Yeah. If you had a choice of going forward in time, any point in time, or going back at any point in time in history, which one would you choose and why? You know what, man? Going forward, I don't know what to tell you. Because if I choose to go forward for 100 years and I wake up in the same coronavirus thing, I'm going to kill someone. So <laughs> uh, I think I'll go back. I think I would go back sometime maybe like the beginning of the 19th century. Okay. Just because of the way the world worked then and I just I would just like to see how how the world is functioning at the time because everything that we know about it is from books or TV shows or documentaries, but I would yeah. really like to see how people were living because it was a much simpler time. Uh, people definitely had their own worries and issues, but it was a simpler time. And I would just like to, to feel that non-constant um, multitasking that goes on in our heads. I would just like to see what it's like to, to live in that time. Not, not for long, though. <laughs> I would miss internet, though. But <laughs> for a little bit, I would like yeah. to see. But, uh, but I would like to go to the future, too. I would like to see what's going to happen with the world. Uh, and maybe it's going to be terrible. So I don't really have any positive uh, ideas about it. I'm being more realistic. I would like to see what's going to happen. But I'm not really sure that I would like what I would see. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people would share those thoughts, uh, me especially. Yeah, maybe it's a whole Westworld situation. You never know. Maybe we're all in a part of a part and we don't even know. Yeah, a mind boggler. Mm -hmm. So um, would we be able to do some word associations now? So if I say a word and you say the first word that comes to your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so relaxing. Beach. Family. Mm, love. Yoga. Peace. Technology. Netflix. <laughs> right now. <laughs> Netflix. I'm so grateful for it. Um, home. Mm, wherever I am with my husband. 
Amazing. Well, yeah, Carla, it was amazing speaking to you. Um, definitely learned a lot. Um, hopefully the Corona thing passes and, you know, we can do a part two. And I don't know, if, you, if you're ever in London, give me a shout. Or if you're ever in Seattle, we'll definitely give you a shout. We can do one uh, via video. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely keep, keep you up to date with the podcast. And if you have any more questions or anything like that, just, you know, shoot us a message. I will do. Thank you so much for having me. I had a really good time. Thanks a lot, Carla. Take it easy. Bye.